All right, friends, well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 7 this morning as we continue to make our way through this book. And as we do, uh, I'm going to tell you a little story about myself. So uh, I'm six foot four. I can flail a little bit when I sleep, right? And every now and then I'll wake up and my arm's hanging off the bed. And, and I just full confession, there's a moment if my arm or foot is like hanging off the bed, and especially if it's night, I'll be like, <gasps> and I'll like pull it up real quick right? And you're like, why would he do such a strange thing? Well, it's because some evil person when I was young said, Anthony, don't let your hand hang down near the bottom of the bed at night or your foot, or there'll be a beast that comes and gets you, right? And when I was young, I believed that. Now, young people, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. There are no beasts under the bed, in your closet, or anywhere else, okay? Parents, you know, ah, I named it, work on that. If they're freaked out at home, it's not my fault. I, I disclaimed it, right? But, but, but they would tell me that, right? And, and literally, it freaked me out. You know, I'm really glad last week I outgrew this. Sarah was getting really tired of this pattern in my life where this fear existed. But, but I would, when I was a kid, I would get up on the bed. And if I had to use the bathroom or go get my parents at night, I'm up on the bed. And in my mind, I was like, six feet. The, the beast can't reach beyond six feet. And so I'd get on the bed and I'd just be like, you know, and I'd jump. And, and mom's like, what are you doing in there? You know, I'm like, it's the beast, mom. And my mom did what every other good parent would do is they would be like, there is no beast, right? There's nothing to be afraid of, right? And, and she was right, right? But here's the reality. I, I'm not a psychologist, right? And somebody can correct me on this if I'm totally wrong. But, but I was a pretty fearful kid, and some of that is just kiddom. And, and, and some of that is, uh, I think, when I looked at the world around me in that moment when I was younger, uh, I was faced with what I would consider to be beasts, right? I was, I was in and out of hospitals and surgeries and sickness and had a disabled father. And I lost friends at my age of six and seven and eight and, and in the middle school. And uh, there were bullies at school, right? And, and while they weren't the beasts who were under my bed, I think at night there was just some manifestations in my dreams of, of the beasts that I faced in real life, right? What I was convinced of is that the world is full of beasts. And I'm not quite sure I was entirely wrong, right? Maybe I ask this question to you. Are there beasts in your world? Okay, maybe it's not what I was talking about, but, but are there beasts in your world that, that keep you up at night? Things that you think about. You know, last week in Daniel chapter 6, or I'm sorry, when we talked about the book of 1 Peter, we said that as followers of Christ, what Peter tells us is there's at least one beast we know of, right? Our enemy. The devil, he is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, probably tapping you on the shoulder and accusing you, saying, yeah, I know that we believe that God looks at us as he looks at his son, but are you really lovable? Are you really his son? Are you really his daughter? Or maybe we wake up and we feel like we are laying next to an enemy. Or maybe we go to work and there's a beast or the bullies at school or whatever that may be. But friends, there is this reality that then in the backs of our minds we're going, yeah, it feels like we do live in a world that is full of beasts. Well, friends, we are involved in a moment of shift, uh, shifting here in the book of Daniel. And we'll unpack that in just a minute. But, but if we just think about the last six weeks or six sermons that we've walked through, Daniel is living in a world full of beasts, isn't he? I mean, isn't that what we have sat in for all of these weeks thus far? We didn't even get to the point where the reason God's people are in exile is because 
God's people are acting beastly towards one another to get there, including the shepherds, right? The shepherds of Israel, they, they were hating their people by the way they either neglected them or uh, abused them in a, very, in a host of different ways or oppressed them or held them down. He faced the beast of Nebuchadnezzar. Build an image. If they don't worship him, fry him, right? And then last week we had the beast of, of Darius and the Medes and the Persians where you thought, okay, maybe there's a break in this beastly action. And, and what do you do? Throw him to the beasts, right? If he just prayed to his God. Daniel himself is living in a world of beasts. And so if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Let's read the first eight verses together as we get going here this morning. Daniel writes this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts came out from the sea, different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up, and the ground was made to stand two, uh, on, on the ground was made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after that I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was given from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were, the, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. What a dream, right? Let me pray for us as we dig into this dream a little bit. Well, Lord, we need you. And as we begin to talk about this, I'm sure that um, pictures of, of kind of the beastly voices that are in our heads or the experiences that we have may flood our hearts. And, and Lord, we're, we're walking in a tender place. But Lord, we're walking in a place where we need your hope. And so, Holy Spirit, would you grant that to us through your word and through your spirit? Holy Spirit, would you guide my words as I preach? And Lord, I beg you that you would change our hearts as a result of, of sitting under your word. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so the arc of our time and the three brief points we're going to hit on this morning. One is a hopeful nightmare. It's going to be verses 1 to 2. Two, we're going to look at a world full of beasts, verses 3 to 8. And then finally, we're going to look at the end of the story, which for us will be verses 9 to verse 18. And so first, let's look at this hopeful nightmare. So when we start off, for us, we're going, yeah, it's a nightmare, right? This is You do not want to wake up from this vision, right? Or maybe you do want to wake up. You don't want to have this vision, right? It is a nightmare. Um, part of that, and, and what we're talking about here, is this tectonic shift that we've had from the first six chapters now, uh, the, and, and the change will last from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 12. And that change is some of this wonky language, like we've been reading so far, right? Where there's this imagery and these weird beasts, and this is what we call apocalyptic literature. 
And there's two major concentrations of this as we walk through Scripture. One is this section that we're going to venture into, and then the other is in the book of Revelation. And I'll just tell you this, chapter 6 is usually where people kind of end teaching or studying Daniel because it just gets a little trippy. Like, it's, it's tough stuff. It was hard for me. It's, it's a little terrifying to venture into it for the next several weeks. But, but it's God's Word, and it has great benefit for us. But, but it's apocalyptic literature. So let me just say this, as we begin, you'll see in verse 2 that the winds came and, and you see the ocean being stirred up. And Todd said this a number of weeks ago as he led us in worship. When you see, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, stormy seas being referenced or water, it often represents the chaos of the world around him, okay? And so for Daniel, he is obviously in a world full of chaos. And for us, I don't know if you've paid attention in the last couple of years, but it's felt a little chaotic, Right? And for many of us, right, outside of the last two years, there is a chaos around us in the world that that is hard for us to explain. And in part, that is why God gives us apocalyptic literatures to unpack that. So let me let me give you the quotes of a couple of other folks who have helped me understand, first of all, what are we even talking about with this apocalyptic literature? Because I said this is a hopeful nightmare, right? And, and in fact, I would actually lean on this being more hopeful than nightmarish once you get beyond the beast. Let me give you uh, the words of one man, Dale Ralph Davis. He says this. He says, biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God, of, of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message throughout the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. Amen, right? As we've already seen, that's what the imagery is. Uh, Let me quote Ian Duguid. He's a professor at Westminster. He says this, Biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, which is an age characterized by conflict and its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of the world and their replacement by the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. This revelation unfolds in complex and mysterious imagery and has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. And those are good working definitions. Let me just try to put it on one slide, although this is even hard to do. It's still a little gnarly, but um, uh, this is my attempt uh, to kind of squeeze it down even more. It says, it's God's revelation, right? That's what God's word is. It's his revelation given to exhort and encourage God's suffering people, right? Suffering in a world that is not our home through fantastic imagery depicting the end of all rebellion against God and its replacement or those kingdoms' replacement by the perfect king and kingdom. And so that's where we're headed as we talk about apocalyptic literature. Now, you may be asking, what's the point of this? Okay, that, you know, a lot of words. We've got, you know, we're coming at it from different angles. How does this impact my day-to-day life? Well, as I was reading Davis, he gave this illustration that was helpful to me. In World War II, uh, right, you've got the Allies and the Axis powers battling against each other. And, and the Germans, in particular, had this code called the Enigma Code. Right? They were quite confident that this was an uncrackable code, and it's what they used to, to send different coordinates for, for ambushes or plans. And, and just in case it fell into the hands of the enemy, they couldn't crack the code. Well, thankfully, some British mathematicians did crack it. And they came up with something called the Ultra System. This was depicted in the movie Imitation Game, if you're familiar with that, if it sounds familiar. Well, here's the deal. They wanted to keep this 
system a secret, right? You want to use this to your advantage. And they did. In March of 1941, uh, they decoded plans where the Germans were going to attack with the Luftwaffe, I think I'm saying that right, uh, and the Italian Navy were going to basically uh, ambush British convoys in the Mediterranean. And so after they found that out, they're like, we still need to keep it a secret. We don't want them to know that we have this code. And so what they did is they're like, let's fly a plane over where we think they're going to be gathering together so when they look back on the attack, they go, oh, that was a scout that came over, right? They're just trying to, you know, uh, pretend that, you know, they don't have this code. Well, eventually, exactly what you would hoped to have happened, happened. They met the threat. They defeated it. They badly injured the Italian Navy, uh, and they were able to cover it up. Now, here's the reality. This cracking of the Enigma Code gave an enormous morale boost to the Allies, right? I mean, if you knew a little bit ahead of time what the enemy was going to do, wouldn't that encourage you? Wouldn't that help clarify the insanity that you're living in? But you know what they couldn't do? They couldn't forget the fact that they were still at war, that there were going to be casualties that lie ahead. But even as they do it, they're not in the dark, and and they can move forward with confidence. Well, friend, in part, that is the effect, I believe, that the Holy Spirit wants things like apocalyptic literature to have on us, where we realize that we're still in the war. It's not going to eliminate the suffering, but it brings sanity and it brings hope as we're engaged in that battle. Here's the second point. We see here in verses 3 to 8, a world full of beasts. Now, I'm going to shorten it. We're going to read these two verses here in just a second. But uh, Daniel goes from being the one who is interpreting dreams up to this point to the one who needs someone to interpret. And in, in the following verses, we're not going to read them all, but an angel basically interprets this dream for him. In verse 17, what he says is these four beasts are kings that are going to rise up from the earth. These are, these are new kingdoms and kings that are going to come forth uh, either during or after you, Daniel. And so here's the four beasts that we see here in our context. We see uh, in verse 4, a lion and an eagle. Go birds, uh, uh, combination standing on two feet, right? We see a bear in verse 5 who has devoured much flesh and told to devour more. We see a leopard in verse 6 with wings depicting speed and four heads so no one could hide from his gaze. 7 and 8 is the most terrifying, right? There's no animal name or or, or identity given to him because it's really undistinguishable uh, from the animal kingdom. Uh, There's 10 horns. This likely depicts some form of power or strength. And he devoured what was left and he continued to speak great things. So what do we do with this? How How do we make sense of these beasts? Well, historically, it's interesting. As you look at the church, sometimes, I mean, growing up, Uh, Some of the churches I attended, they used to have these weekend seminars where they would go, let's get together and let's figure out who the beast is, right? And, and so it's like, okay, was it, was it Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and so on and so forth? Was it Nero and Domitian and some of these other rulers? Was it, was it Gorbachev, right? That was kind of my time. Is this talking about, you know, US F-14s flying over the Middle East? Like, what is it? And, and sometimes they'll land on like, we got it and we're leaving. Now we know exactly what's happened in the end times. Now, what usually happens when, when the beasts don't turn out to be what we think they are, we're like disillusioned and we're like, never mind all this stuff and ball it up and throw it away, right? I'm not saying using our imagination uh, it isn't good. In fact, I think apocalyptic literature, God gives it to us so we can imagine, right? However, I think we take it too far to go to God's Word and say, see this and American F-14, right? It, God's Word, let me just say this, I just want to be clear, 
it does not give us that level of clarity. We will not be able to discern exactly who each one of these beasts are. We can have some really good guesses, but I don't think that's the point in apocalyptic literature, particularly as we see these beasts unfold before us. Here's here's how I would suggest approaching beasts in apocalyptic literature is, is as we see the beasts of our world, right? Even now, we see things going on. Uh, over in Russia, right? Over in Ukraine. That is beastly. I think what this is meant to show us is that the world is full of power-loving, God-hating beasts, <laughs> and nothing less than the beginning of the new age brought about by Christ's second coming will change that. That is the reality we are until Christ returns. Until the coming of this new age, the darkness will not lift to the degree that we hope, and in sometimes not even significantly. It is fascinating. I was reading uh, this week. Fascinating what the world's superpowers, what animals are associated with them. Isn't it? When you stop and think about it, America, we're eagles, right? I know, guys. I, we're in Philly. I don't want to say it again. I know Philadelphia eagles. Just, just, just push that down. Like, eagles, a predator, right? Russia, it's a bear. China, it's a dragon, right? It's just fascinating. It's just food for thought. We see the beasts of the world gone beyond us. We've got Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, Alexander the Great, Nero, Domitian, Hitler, Stalin, Putin. We see persecution of Christians time and time again over the course of time uh, in, in, during the Inquisition in Sudan and, and in China with re-education camps. And you know, I have a friend who I had lunch with who was a Chinese pastor, and he was arrested, him and his father. And uh, you know, it, it, There is beasts who want to ravage God's people and ravage the church. I think when we see beasts, we need to recognize that history is beastly and scary. Davis quoted a woman by the name of Barbara Tuckman. She says this about the American Revolution. She said, revolutions produce other men, not new men. What she means by that is is every generation is going to have their beasts. In fact, I think that beast lies in all of our hearts. It's called sin. It's in rebellion against God. It's hungry for our own power, right? Apocalyptic literature creates a longing for the actual end of the story when all of that is undone, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Read with me verses 17 and 18. If you want to circle and star uh, the part of this passage that is basically the main point, it's these two verses, and I would argue it's probably verse 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. All right, so that's who the four beasts are. But then do you see that key word there, but? You remember, I've told you what the word but stands for, right? Behold the underlying truth. That's what but stands for. It doesn't really say that. English teachers right now are losing their minds. That's not what that means. But when we say it, we're like, well, I'm really sorry, but. And you're like, ah, there it is. Behold the underlying truth. That's where you're going. Well, this is the positive. These beasts will be here, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. All right, so the purpose here is for God not to give us nightmares, but rather to give us hope. And he does it by two pictures we're going to look at briefly. The first is a heavenly court, and the second is a lasting kingdom. Here's the picture of the heavenly court, verses 9 to 12. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair on his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire uh, issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here's what I mean by a heavenly court. You see the thrones of the kingdom of uh, heaven, or at least in this vision, uh, put around a greater throne that is occupied by the Ancient of Days. And this is a picture of God the Father here. It says his clothing was white as snow. That means he is perfectly pure. His hair of his head like pure wool, probably depicting age or wisdom. And then all the fire that comes out, right? That is a picture of his power, okay? Now the reality is we see all of that come together at the end where he stands in judgment over all of these beasts, particularly the fourth one, where in mid-sentence he drops them. He judges them. He kills them. He's burned with fire. Full stop. No one is going to compare with this judge. Now here's what's beautiful is these three pieces of wisdom, purity, and power. As I thought about that this week, that is just a picture of God being God and something that we can never be. You and I might have some wisdom, but we will never have perfect wisdom where we see the whole picture, discerning right from wrong. He has that wisdom all the time, perfectly. We also see that picture of purity. Even if we were able to depict the difference between right and wrong, I'm not sure we would always purely follow it because we have our own desires at work in our own hearts. And then that picture of power to do something about it. right? He can make the judgment. He can be uh, pure in following that judgment. And he can actually execute that judgment. Friends, every single one of us is saying what Putin's doing is wrong. And there is no individual in this room who can do a blessed thing about it. We are not God. He is God. He is different. And here's the picture of the lasting kingdom, finally here in 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came like one a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All right, so in verse 13, we see this Son of Man be brought to the Ancient of Days on this cloud chariot, right? And when he shows up, uh, essentially, uh, he is given the dominion, right? The kingdom, and he calls himself like a Son of Man. Like a Son of Man essentially means there's something about this person that, that is man, but there's something more. Now, Daniel can't possibly see this, but Son of Man is the, is the name or title that Jesus refers to himself most by as we approach the New Testament. What Daniel can't see, we can see clearly. It's referring to Jesus Christ. He is given dominion, glory, and power, just like the previous rulers, by the way. In every tribe, tongue, and nation in 14, the people's nations and languages, they're also given to him. But the difference between him and these other rulers is that this kingdom is everlasting. It will never pass away. And it will never be destroyed. Now let me just say this. There's an already not yet to this. 
it is certainly talking about the second coming, but I believe this is also talking about Jesus' ascension. After his death on the cross, his resurrection, he ascends, and that's where he sits now, is at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And it says, uh, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So even now, friends, if we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we are following the king who is currently ruling. Now, one day it will meet its complete uh, revelation, right? But he has not lost control, even though we may see that beasts abound. I liken it to D-Day versus V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day. Right? D-Day is kind of the uh, beginning of the end of the fall of the Axis powers, but there was still the Battle of the Bulge. There were still war or battles that were going to be fought and casualties that were going to be had, but that victory in Europe Day is guaranteed. Let me conclude with this picture. If you've been watching the news about Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, there's an image that has gone around recently of a Russian TV producer who goes behind the anchor with this poster that says stop war in English and a bunch of other things. And what we know is Vladimir Putin has been putting out kind of a misinformation campaign, right? Lying about what's going on in Ukraine. And this brave producer said stop war. And in Russian, it said, don't believe the propaganda. They are lying to you. In fact, it says here they're lying to you, talking about her channel. And again, as I was reading this week, Uh, there's this reality for us that apocalyptic literature is kind of like that producer with the poster behind her, where the propaganda of this present world is to say it's futile to fight against the beast. You just need to give in and give up and be hopeless. But friends, the apocalyptic writer here is refusing to be assimilated to this world's way of thinking. So in the midst of great suffering, God through Jesus is already ruling and will establish his kingdom in its entirety when Jesus returns. In a world full of beasts, there is hope, there will be vindication, and there will be a day when all of the hard and the rebellion is undone. Now, can I just say this? This passage is meant to just drop us to our knees and glorify God full stop. But I will also say this is that every single one of us has that beast of sin and rebellion in our hearts, and we will one day be rightly judged. What God's Word says elsewhere is that if we have faith in Christ, we get His record, and He gets that judgment, not us. But apart from Him, that judgment is every bit deserved by the wise, pure, and powerful God. And so I don't want you to miss the gracious invitation that the Lord offers us today, where he says, hey, this king also offers his life for you, so that if you receive him and believe in him, you actually have the right to become his children, not to sit in that seat of being judged. So don't let this moment pass without considering that reality in your life as well. Let me close this in prayer, and we'll move to the installation. Lord, We thank you for your word, and we thank you that even in the midst of chaos, of beasts, that you are currently ruling and reigning. Now, Lord, admittedly, in my own heart this week, I struggled to say, Lord, if you're on the throne, why this? And Father, I don't have those answers, but Lord, I do have this picture of hope, and so does every person in this room. And I just beg you to give us that picture of hope as we move out into whatever chaos that you have us in. Give us the hope of your Son, 
Give us the hope of your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen.